Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. That's right. Hispanic Heritage Month did not actually start out as a month. It only became an entire month under President Reagan. It originally started in 1968, however, as Hispanic Heritage Week under President Lyndon Johnson. And if you're wondering, which I'm sure you are, it runs from September 15th to October 15th. So you have a whole nice long stretch to celebrate Hispanic history. And there is significance to it kicking off on September 15th because that is the anniversary of independence for Latin American countries, including Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. And in addition to that, Mexico and Chile celebrate their independence days on September 16th and September 18th, respectively. And not only that, but also during this period, Columbus Day or Dia de la Raza, which is October 12th, falls within this month-long period. And also thanks to the Facebook fan who said, hey, ladies, you should do something for Hispanic Heritage Month because, yes, it is a fantastic suggestion. Um, but first, let's talk for a moment about uh, Hispanic versus Latino versus another term that has been used as a slur in the past but has since been reclaimed, and that is Chicano. Right. Uh, Chicano or Chicana was originally, like you said, a derogatory term, but has been reclaimed by several groups. And we'll get into that as we go on in the podcast. But first of all, let's talk about what Hispanic means. That's a broad term, and it basically refers to countries that can trace uh, part of their history to Spain. And that includes Mexico, parts of Central America, and most of South America. And it refers to, very importantly, origins, not race. And so a country that would not be called Hispanic, for instance, would be Brazil because that was colonized back in the day by Portugal. And then uh, Latino or Latina is close in meaning, but it does include countries like Brazil. So it's more of a generic term. And it, it, I believe that the Associated Press, for instance, a lot of news outlets now uh, opt for Latino and Latina. So just some language notes at the top of the podcast. Um, but first, let's kick off this celebration just by calling out some culturally influential Hispanic women. Yeah, this is coming from a couple of sources, including Time and Yahoo. So let's kick it off with some entertainers that we should be familiar with. We've got Christina Aguilera of Ecuadorian uh, descent, Sofia Vergara, who's Colombian, and she's actually the highest paid actress on TV right now. And let's not forget America Ferreira, who in 2007 became the first Latina to win an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. Her parents are from Honduras. Um, and then moving into lawmaking, we have Susana Martinez, who is America's first Latina governor and the first female and current governor of New Mexico. And, of course, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is of Puerto Rican descent. Yeah, and it's worth noting, even though she is not American, Michelle Bachelet, who is the former president of Chile and current leader of UN Women, also known as the UN Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women. And a couple other notable names, and certainly these are not all of the culturally influential Latina women that we could cite, but we do want to give props to Ellen Ochoa, who is the Deputy Director of the Johnson Space Center and was the first Latina astronaut to go into space in 1993. 
Yeah, that's, I want to go to space. Although I feel like I would get really motion sick. And one woman standing at the head of a media empire is Nina Tassler, who is the president of the CBS network and has a Puerto Rican mother. And then finally, there's Dara Torres, who is of Spanish descent and is considered the fastest female swimmer in the U.S. and won 12 Olympic medals. So that is just a a snapshot, obviously, of the diversity of fields in which these women are making so many inroads. But we really want to focus this podcast and our, our celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month more on the daily lives of everyday women in the United States. Because while all of those women that we just cited are, of course, worth celebrating, but their lives are probably a lot different and a lot more affluent, not surprisingly, because many are celebrities. Uh, but they do stand in stark contrast to what life is really like for the average Hispanic woman in America. Right. And so if we're looking at numbers, um, in the U.S., there are 30.1 million Hispanic adults, 14.4 million or almost half, 48 percent, are women. That's coming from the U.S. Census Bureau. And in 2008, uh, the Pew Research Center took a look at some of these demographics um, and found that the picture is not always so pretty when it comes to things like income and education. For instance, 36% of Hispanic women in the U.S. have less than a high school education compared with just 10% of non-Hispanic women. And then when we look at median income, uh, for Hispanic women, it's $460 per week compared to $615 per week for non-Hispanic women. And they are also twice as likely to live in poverty and Hispanic women born in the U.S. are more likely to be in the labor force than Hispanic women who have moved here for reasons that we will get into in just a little bit. Right. And those women who are in the labor force are most likely uh, to be in office and administration support roles. Um, and they are more likely than non-Hispanic women to be employed in blue collar jobs like building and grounds cleaning and maintenance food prep and personal care slash service occupation type jobs. So these kinds of inequalities in terms of educational attainment and the wages that they're bringing home and domestic roles are the reasons why we want to focus on something called Chicana feminism, which then evolves into Latina feminism. Uh, but when we're looking first at Chicana feminism, it's a movement and ideology that seeks to address those inequalities that are specifically facing for Chicana feminism, women of Mexican descent. Right. And it's not just issues that they're facing kind of at soci- in society at large. It's also, like we said, in within their own communities, the issue of being almost invisible, of being being expected to stay home. So a common definition of a Chicana is a Mexican-American female raised in the U.S. And it's a term that was actually reclaimed. You know, we pointed out that it was, you know, for a long time, a derogatory term. And it was reclaimed during the Chicano movement of the 1960s by Mexican-American women who wanted to establish social, cultural and political identities for themselves in America beyond 
kind of the deal that they'd been handed. Yeah, and, and Mexican-Americans have a long and rich history in the United States because as early as the U.S.-Mexico War of 1848, for instance, and the Mexican Revolution in 1910, Mexican families were driven to settle in the U.S. colonized territories, including El Paso, San Antonio, San Diego, L.A., and Santa Barbara. So this Chicano movement, out of which grows the Chicana feminist movement, sparked in the 1960s and was fueled by the United Farm Workers strike. And now the United Farm Workers were a group that really sought equality for Mexican-American workers, agricultural workers, and was originally referred to as the National Farm Workers Association. And it was started by three main players, Cesar Chavez, Philip Veracruz and Dolores Huerta. Yes, a woman started an organization. Um, and she was actually, she's really fascinating to read about. She was inspired herself by her mother's independence and entrepreneurial spirit and talks about how her mother was so involved in the community. And while she may not have referred to herself as a feminist or even a Chicana feminist, she was there in the community, you know, volunteering and helping out. So she was very involved. Yeah. And for fans of PBS's Makers series on influential women, uh, there's a great interview with Dolores Suerta in which she talks about her participation with the Farm Workers Association and how it was really significant that she was a woman in the movement and also in the spotlight as well. And uh, it really talks about how it's important for women to own their accomplishments and not be scared to raise their voice if you want to check out that interview. Um, so while we have things like the United Farm Workers Strike going on and that energizing of the Chicano movement, there are women who are starting to recognize not just inequalities in regard to their ethnicity, but also inequalities with regard to their gender roles in their own societies. And so it, with all of this activism that's starting to go on, I mean, because think about it in the context of civil rights that's mm-hmm. going on all across the nation, you have these women in the same in the same way that you have black women within the civil rights movement starting up their consciousness at raising groups and things like womanism growing out of that, you have Chicana feminism starting too. Well, so it's interesting to look at the barriers that they had to overcome to even form this movement and how those barriers really just drove them to push right through those walls. So some of those things that they were dealing with, it was the same thing that we talked about in our Solidarity is for White Women episode where we looked at some uh, African-American feminists, they really were pushing against this Eurocentric feminist framework that tended to ignore differences in backgrounds. It was, you know, a lot of uh, women of color at this time were pointing out, like, you know what, feminism really is this kind of middle class white woman's fight. I, I don't feel the same. I don't come from that same background. My fight is different. And they also were fighting against this embedded Marianista model of gender relations, which centered on an acceptance of abusive male behavior and women's subordination. Basically, the idea of, you know, idealizing the Virgin Mary and how submissive and, you know, just sweet, gentle and quiet she was. Yeah, you have the Marianismo, as it's referred to, for the women versus the more machismo culture that is more applied to the men. And it's very much the dominant and subordinate within that. Right. And so, you know, there's this ideal of this virginal, quiet, subdued purity. 
And this focus on being a wife and a mother, that's your job. That's that's the role that you fill both in our family and our community, in addition to uh, society at large. And there's been a lot of scholarship that's actually looked into Chicana feminism. There are entire departments, actually, at colleges that are devoted to this, and not just looking at things like the Marianismo and Domesticana, but also the roots of that machismo culture as well. And, and some people think that the machismo element of Mexican culture was really a reaction against the powerlessness that the men felt in broader American society, which only reinforced on the home front the subjugation of women. It's all a trickling down, in a way, of racism that then breeds more sexism, that then you know cycles into these generations of women who are really bound to the home. And with Chicana feminism... These women were ready to say, you know what? I've had enough of this model of life. So this kind of cohesive Chicana uh, identity really sparked after the 1969 Chicano Youth Liberation Conference. That sort of brought the Chicano movement together. But out of that, in May 1971, came more of the Chicana movement of saying like, okay, well, we, our voices need to be heard too. And that, in May 1971, that's when we have the Mujeres por la Raza conference, which brought together 600 women. Yeah, and, and they took a survey, which was really telling of, of the situation that a lot of these women were facing because it found that 84% of those 600 women who were gathered said that they weren't encouraged, for instance, to pursue professional careers and education was not considered important among their families. It wasn't considered important for women specifically to uh, attain education. Similarly, 84% also thought that there wasn't equal pay for equal work. That sounds familiar. And 72% perceived racial discrimination. And also out of that conference, they called for things like legal abortion, equal access to education, establishment of child care centers, and abolition of traditional marriages. And with those two last platforms, the need for child care centers and abolition of traditional marriages, you start to see how Chicana feminism is a bit different, addresses different needs than the Eurocentric white feminism that we often hear about in terms of second wave feminism that really hammered home gender over race, gender over race. It's all about women, and we're just talking about women rather than looking at ethnicity and class. And that was problematic. Right. So that same year of the conference, 1971, writer Marta Vidal really kind of hammers home why this movement is so important and so necessary. And she writes that the oppression suffered by Chicanas is different from that suffered by most women in this country. Because Chicanas are part of an oppressed nationality, they are subjected to the racism practiced against La Raza. And since the overwhelming majority of Chicanas are workers, Chicanas are also victims of the exploitation of the working class. But in addition, Chicanas, along with the rest of women, are relegated to an inferior position because of the, their sex. Thus... Raza women suffer a triple form of oppression as members of an oppressed nationality, as workers, and as women. And so as you can hear in that quote from Marta Vidal, the determination to not just address 
their needs as women, but also the more specific needs as Mexican-American women who were facing these different and arguably more difficult kinds of hindrances within society. And with that kind of determination, Chicana feminism really laid a foundation to rethink what we might normally think of as just kind of basic feminism to broaden it and shift it from the Eurocentric view in the same way that you're going to see if you look into feminism and womanism among African-American women at the time. These are a lot of similar struggles that are going on. And it's that effort to raise their visibility as assets both within their community and also within the population at large that's a major hallmark of Chicana feminism. Right, and it does evolve just like any social movement does. It starts to evolve, and that's when we have the outgrowth of Latina feminism, which serves as more of an umbrella term. It's more of a coalition bringing together um, women from so many different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, regional backgrounds. Um, although it can be challenging, as with any label, it can be challenging to just say, I'm a Latina feminist or a Chicana feminist or I'm part of a Latina feminist movement because you do have all of those different backgrounds. You do have women from so many different corners of the world. And so part of why there was this breaking away from like more mainstream feminism is because there wasn't a voice for them. But you also have to acknowledge, well, is is everybody's voice being heard under Latina feminism, too? But we're just bringing that up to point out that there was this evolution of the movement to be somewhat more inclusive. Yeah, there's been a lot of efforts to create more of a pan-Latina coalition building and really conceptualizing what a pan-ethnic Latina feminist movement that is inclusive would look like. And if you read scholarship then and today... A lot of times they talk about how that really is a major challenge, not to mention still the challenge of their voices being heard simply because the platform for Latina feminists, unfortunately, is is still not as loud as the more Eurocentric, whiter feminists today, I say, as a European-descended white feminist. Um, but if you do, we, we encourage you to learn more about this movement. And if you do want to, we encourage you to look up Gloria Anzaldúa, who wrote Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza. And that's considered basically the seminal Chicano feminist text. Yeah, she was a lesbian Chicana writer whose work shows the intersectionality of things like gender, sexuality, and the social construction of racial identity. So if you want to really dig into the theory of Chicana feminism, definitely check out Borderlands. So let's take a moment before we wrap up the podcast and talk just a minute about Latina feminism today. I mean, are, are there voices being heard? Well, it seems to me in, in doing a lot of reading for this that, you know, women in this movement still face a lot of the same issues that they did before, you know, kind of being overwhelmed by the mainstream feminist movement, the Eurocentric feminist movement, still hearing echoes of, you know, being a woman is more important than your race, you know, fighting for women's rights is more important than your ethnicity, all of that stuff. And so one woman in particular, Juliana Brito Schwartz, who uh, is of Brazilian descent, her her mother is Brazilian, 
uh, wrote Confessions of a Complicated Latina Feminist, explaining why she adopted this term, Latina Feminist. Yeah, she said, I've had too many conversations with Latina who I would consider to be incredible feminists and have had them tell me that they feel excluded and out of place in the feminist movement. To these women, feminist does not represent them or the struggles that their communities face. And Schwartz goes on to talk about how spending time with women in rural Brazil even further changed her mind about how feminism applies to Latina women. Right. And she talks about how, you know, while there are feminist movers and shakers, for lack of a better term, uh, fighting for passage of laws, protecting women against violence and, and things like that, women who are actually out in more rural areas aren't as concerned with laws as they are the implementation of them and the actual trickle down effect of being protected. And she writes that they are fighting to break down deeply rooted stereotypes about women's role in the home and in the workplace, just as they are, just as many women are in America still. And she says they are less concerned about legalizing abortion and more concerned with having to drive an hour and a half for modern maternal health care. And there was a Ms. Magazine roundtable not too long ago with Latina feminist bloggers, including Schwartz, along with Sarah Inez Calderon, Anne-Marie Perez, and Patricia Valoy, who really revealed similar observations and perceptions of mainstream feminism in terms of not fully identifying with it and a, a lot talking about how their voices aren't so much being heard because their experience is often so different than the narratives that we typically hear in you know, on, on the large people with the largest Twitter followings or the mainstream blogs or whatever it might be. Sure. And one thing that Swartz brought up that I, I did think was really interesting to point out, because you don't uh, from a from the place where we sit, we don't often think about it this way. But she talks about, you know, reproductive rights also being it's being a cho- it's having a choice both ways. You know, a lot of people talking about the choice to have an abortion But she's saying a lot of women of color, you know, face these awful stereotypes for choosing to have children. You know, a lot of a lot of women of color are, you know, being told, like, you know, are you sure you want to have more kids? Maybe, you know, maybe you shouldn't have so many children. And that's just as much a choice as choosing not to have children. And so there are so many different perspectives out there. And and we wanted to bring a lot of them to you as best we could. Yeah, and one thing that that blogger roundtable really hammered home, same thing when you look into the Solidarity is for White Women conversation that sprang up on Twitter not too long ago, is that need for intersectionality and not just talking about it, but really trying to put it more into practice, Mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why we wanted to do this podcast. I mean, obviously, the personal experience, Caroline, that you and I share are of (laughs) two white women. We can't change that. But what we can change is at least the, the names that we reference and the sources that we talk about and the topics that we cover. So I'd say at least our celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month and talking about Latina feminism is our contribution to the conversation. That's right. Just as we're celebrating Hispanic heritage, we're celebrating Hispanic, Latina, and Chicana feminists 
out there in the world as well. Yeah. And I think that the more we can deepen our understanding of what feminism really means, not just to us, but to people who might not be like us at all, then the better understanding that we're going to have of our society at large, because it really I think that everyone's definition of it really speaks to a, a different experience that we need to consider. That's right. And I, I, for one, look forward to hearing from our listeners, from our Latina listeners, our Hispanic listeners. Um, maybe tell us more about women, women heroes, you know, that, that you have in your lives or, or writers, politicians, anyone who who you think deserves to be mentioned. Yeah. And whether or not, uh, you know, for Latinas or, or women of color in general, whether or not that uh, point about not identifying even still in 2013 with feminism because of how white and Eurocentric it still seems to be, if that's something that also resonates with you, because I think it's an important conversation that we all need to be having. So send us your letters, as always. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can write us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or hit us up on Facebook. And we've got a couple of notes to share with you when we come right back from this break. And now, back to our letters. I have a letter here from Alice about our um, Solidarity is for White Women episode, which also revisited Six Black Feminists, you should know. Alice writes, As a woman of color who has issues identifying as a feminist for many of the reasons you address in this podcast and in the Black Feminist episode, I find it hard to have a conversation about this with other white women who do identify as feminists. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with women who declare they're feminists, then in the same breath go on to say something racist or more likely some sort of microaggression. Some examples include describing their racist Halloween costume plans, explaining that a part of the city is unsafe because it is a historically black neighborhood. I'm tired of being forced to apologize to feminists for pointing out their racism and think that you guys could have done a better job of discussing the specifics of why women of color today feel excluded. It's hard because I feel like these sorts of things are mostly anecdotal, but discussing the issue of things like derailing would have been helpful. All in all, I was excited to see this episode title in my little podcast menu, and I hope that you two are able to incorporate more viewpoints from and episodes about women of color. So thank you, Alice. And speaking of racist Halloween costumes, uh, spoiler alert, we are planning by Facebook request to do an episode on Halloween and cultural appropriation. Hooray. Don't dress up as a Native American, white people. Well, I have an email here from Emily, and it is in response to another listener letter that we read from a horticulturalist who is the only woman on her team, and she was asking for advice on how to get along with sometimes not-so-nice male co-workers. And Emily has a lot of experience working with men, um, and specifically working with men in the military. And so she passed along some tips. She says, One, if someone does something that makes you uncomfortable, talk to them honestly and respectfully and tell them that what they did made you uncomfortable and to please stop. Take someone in the office as a witness if you need to. I have done this before and I have never had to go beyond this level. 
Two, if this fails, make an official complaint with the person who is in charge of the country club. Again, maintain honesty and respect. And three, if this fails, get a lawyer. You will be amazed how things can change with the phrase, I need to talk to my attorney about this harassment. Only say this if you will actually go and get a lawyer. Don't bluff. Besides the psychopaths and sociopaths in the world, most humans are very nice, and most dudes don't realize that they might be making you uncomfortable. The mouse poop glove incident might be even a misguided attempt to include you in their club. And as far as your supervisor asking you if you're upset because, quote-unquote, you're on your period, I would have responded and have done so in the past about explaining the fun of perioding and how awesome pap smears are and all the other lady problems, in quotes, that we ladies have. That will probably shut most dudes up. Dudes aren't usually fond of hearing about unsexy lady fluid problems. <laughs> If they are still listening and you haven't grossed them out, your supervisor may be a psychopath or sociopath, and you probably need to find somewhere else to work. I wish you luck, lady horticulturalist. Oh my god, that is genius. I love that. I'm gonna use that in my life. Like talking about like, no, I'm not on my period. I just had a speculum shoved halfway up my cervix and you know, like pap smearing it up. I wonder if that'll get him to stop. That sounds great. I know I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, Kristen, I'm watching Kristen like physically shrink into a little ball as I talk. Pap smears aren't any fun. No, they're not. No, they're not. Have we done an episode on pap smears? We've talked about it. Maybe it's time. (laughs) Well, if you would like to send us your pap smear stories (laughs) and suggestions, momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and like us on Facebook. You can also follow us on Instagram. Some people keep asking, hey, are y'all on Instagram yet? Yes, we are at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And if you'd like to watch our faces as well, you know where to go. YouTube.com slash stuff mom never told you and don't forget to subscribe for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 